I am so grateful to be able to be with you today and thankful that Eric has afforded me that opportunity. I know that you know him as your pastor, as do I, and as your friend, I do too. But I share a special relationship with him because I'm the only one who gets to be his father-in-law. And that's a good thing, and I am blessed to be able to be in that role in his life. If I were out choosing a husband for my daughter, Rebecca, I don't think I could come up with a better one than what she got. And so I am so grateful that he's part of our lives and part of our family and grateful that he's given me this opportunity to be with you this morning. Those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you, and I trust that you will be blessed as we share today around the Word of God. This morning we're going to be continuing in the series of messages that our pastor began last week that he has entitled Summer on the Mount. And if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to take that Bible and turn in it to Matthew, the fifth chapter, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 16. If you'll stand with me, I'd like to read from those words to us. Here, Jesus speaking says these words You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit is present to guide us into the truth. And we ask that, Father, you might open the eyes of our heart, that we might see, open our ears, that we might hear, and that we might be able to rejoice as you guide us into the truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the message this morning, Hey, You, Look, Do. In 1957, the Russians launched the first rocket into outer space. It was called the Sputnik. And it began our modern fascination with outer space. Now, modern astronomy actually had taken place back in uh, the 16th century with Galileo and Copernicus. But our fascination with outer space really came about once we were able to escape Earth's atmosphere and uh, began our fascination with outer space. We think about it, we fantasize about it, and we keep trying to probe its depths. We have made our way to the moon, and now there is increasing talk about going beyond the moon and eventually landing on Mars. We, of course, have an international space station out there in outer space. And if you doubt that there is an interest and fascination with outer space, then I would just suggest two thoughts to you. The first, Star Trek. The second, Star Wars. Those two phenomena have certainly swept the country and the world, 
and people are fascinated and interested in what's going on out there. But when we look at the passage that is before us this morning, the focus of Jesus' attention was not so much what's going on out there, but rather what's going on in here, inner space. And last week, as Eric began this series, he shared with us what was called the Beatitudes. And uh, he talked about that the focus there was upon the character of the individual and how that played out in relationship to others. But, you know, as we look at this whole passage here, it's very interesting when you see it in its context. I, I don't know that I had really put the two things together quite as clearly as they came to my understanding as I was preparing for this morning. And that is, if you go back to chapter 4, and look there, in verse 17 of chapter 4, it says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In other words, Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God. It was the focal point of all that he came to do and establish. And so he was preaching about that. But if you just stopped at the end of chapter 4, you might wonder, well, what was he saying about the kingdom? What was his message like? And as if to answer that question for us, we come then to the recording of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Here is what Jesus was preaching about. As Eric suggested last week, this was probably certainly not the only occasion that he shared these truths, but they are compiled in such a way here that we can see it in a sermonic form. And it follows what I believe is a pretty workable outline. I remember a number of years ago hearing Dr. Adrian Rogers when he was talking about how to put a message together, how to develop a sermon. He said, a good way to do that is by using these words. Hey, you, look, do. And the thought is this. The hey part is get their attention. The you part is show how it is personal to them. The look part is let's take a look and see what the Word of God has to say about this. And the do part is then so what now is expected of me. It's interesting that I believe that this sermon that Jesus preached follows exactly that model. The hay part, the attention-getting step of the thing, was the Beatitudes. Here Jesus is casting a vision of what life can be like for those who are part of his kingdom. And he says you're going to really experience a happiness that otherwise would not be possible when you're functioning within God's kingdom in the way that he intended you to function. And so he, as it were, sort of uh, increases our interest in what he's about to say because that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know, every good leader is good at vision casting. And Jesus here is casting a vision for us of what it is that is expected of us as we function within the kingdom. We next come, however, in this sermon to the you part 
And uh, it's this that we're going to really be interested in this morning as we continue through this passage. Note that in verse 13, Jesus says, you. And note also that in verse 14, Jesus says, you. You see, it's very easy if we're not careful to think that the subject matter of these verses that we look at this morning is the matter of salt and light. But those aren't the subject matter. The subject matter is you. And Jesus here says it in a very pointed way. The word translated you in the Greek is found in what is called a second person singular form. In Greek, they have the ability to express you singularly and you plurally with two different words. In English, we're stuck with just one word. I can say you and mean the individual, or I can say you and mean y'all. And that's about the best we can do in distinguishing between those things. If I say you, you're not sure. Is he talking to me or is he talking to everyone? Jesus here erases all that doubt. Jesus here is speaking to the individual. Even though there may have been a huge multitude of people gathered that day on that mountainside, Jesus here makes it intensely personal. I know that uh, Dr. Joel Gregory, who is a wonderful teaching professor at Truett Seminary in Baylor, or in, in Waco, says that uh, uh, many times in the midst of a message, he'll stand to the side of a pulpit like this, and he'll rest his arm here, and he'll say, come near for a minute. And what he's meaning by that is, I want you as an individual to engage with what I'm saying. Another way that he often does this, almost always in a message, he'll say, you know, I wish that I could sit down across from you at a table with a cup of coffee in front of us and and just have a one-on-one conversation about these things. It's that kind of thought that is certainly captured in what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you, and he means the individual. But where the you is found in the sentences within the Greek is in, a, in an, a place of emphasis. It is emphatic in form. And so it is this idea, you and you alone. It's as though suddenly you're an audience of one. It's as though Jesus is saying, you know, I want you to forget everyone who is around you right now, and I want you to think of this as if I'm speaking to you personally. So I guess if that is his intent, maybe that's the way we ought to listen this morning, do you think? That if he really has a word for me as an individual, then I would be well advised to listen. And I would call all of us to that same accountability before him. If we say, okay, I want to take him seriously, I want to listen. What's he going to talk to me about? Well, I think that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, captures the basic tonality of this as he begins this passage with these words. He says, let me tell you why you are here. Now, in reality, that isn't found in the text. 
But that, in, in essence, is what Jesus is speaking to. Let me tell you why you're here. You see, when we're transformed on the inside, then we begin to fulfill our purpose of being here. And in order to understand this, Jesus paints two word pictures. We call them metaphors, one of salt and the other of light. Now, these are going to be familiar to most all of you, but I think it's important for us to listen again as Jesus speaks these words to our hearts individually. You are the salt of the earth. In other words, we are called by Christ to be something. You know, over the years, a lot of, of energy has been spent trying to understand specifically what quality of salt is he referring to here. You see, uh, he may be talking about the economic value of salt because salt was a very precious commodity. In fact, in that day and time, Rome, which was ruling over that area, had a word that related to the salary that was paid to the soldiers. The word salary that we have in our English language derives from a root that means salt because the soldiers were paid in salt. It was such a valuable commodity. Maybe Jesus here is referring to the seasoning value of salt. If I were to ask how many of you are on a salt-restricted diet, some of you would go, and you'd roll your eyes because it's not fun, is it? to suddenly have taken out of your menu those little grains that you get to sprinkle on top of your vegetables or on top of your meat or on top of your ice cream or whatever it is you like salt on. You see, salt is universally liked by people because it is a necessary part of our lives. But the salt, maybe he's referring to the flavoring of salt, but maybe he's talking about the healing properties of salt. You know, if you go and Google uh, the healing quality of salt, WebMD will suggest that there are 13 different healing properties to salt. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? And maybe that's what Jesus is making reference to. Or maybe he's talking about the preserving value of salt because salt was used then and even today to preserve meats. You could salt fish or you could salt uh, beef or pork or, well they wouldn't have salted pork at that time we salt it today but you can salt all kinds of meat to preserve them to keep them from rotting the interesting part is we're really not told that part of what the metaphor is dealing with because that's not the point the point is Jesus wanting us to understand this is who you are it is your essence you are the salt of the earth. And we do know this about salt. Salt is essential. The human body is not able to exist without salt present in it. Sometimes we can become salt depleted and we have to take in salt in order to replenish that. But it is essential to our existence. If you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is casting a vision about, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in this context, if you're going to be part 
of that kingdom, then you need to realize that you are essential to what Christ wants to do in this world. You're not just simply a nice add-on. You are needed. And the simple truth is, there is nothing that can substitute for salt. Oh, I realize that today they've made what they call salt substitutes, but let me tell you, it ain't so. You see, the fact is that there is no substitute for that salt. There's no substitute for you as part of the kingdom. If you're hearing this as if I'm talking to everybody, oh no, Jesus is talking to you as the individual. He's saying there's no substitute for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Individually, there's no substitute for you. And not only that is you, you non-Christians are not salt. Those who are not part of the kingdom are not salt. They don't have that property about them. Now, salt's an interesting compound. It, it's a very, very stable compound. And when you read this, it says, if it loses its saltiness, where will it be restored? But the truth is this, salt really can't lose its saltiness. It's part inherent to its own being or existence. So that Jesus here is saying, you are this and nothing can really change that about you. Now, with salt, you can dilute it to where its presence is, is for all practical purposes, not noticeable. You just keep adding more and more and more water to it to where you can barely even be aware it's there, but it is still salt present, maybe in just very, very tiny amounts, but it still is going to be salt. And then the simple fact is that the other way that you could deal with this is you would have to literally destroy the compound and the molecule in order to cause it to stop being salt. In other words, you'd have to take the sodium and separate it from the uh, uh, chloride. But an interesting thing about those two elements, both of them are very toxic of ingested individually. If you were to take in sodium by itself or chloride by itself, it'd kill you. But when they are combined together in what we call salt, the body is able to handle that and when you take it in, it separates into its ions and is able to bring benefit to us. But you see, it's essential neighbor, and nature is very stable. It doesn't have to strive to be salt. It's in its nature. It's within its essence. To be unsalty totally misses the point of who we are, in other words. We're intended to be this element in society that is essential and is helpful and is very stable and for which nothing else can be substituted. 
it echoes the same sentiment that Peter captured over in 1 Peter 2.9. I think uh, Eric mentioned this even last week. Listen again to the words, though. 1 Peter 2.9. I believe it's 2.10. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to what he says. But you are that you may. And in essence, Jesus says, but you are salt, that you may fulfill the purpose that God had in making you that salt. And if we don't live up to the identity that he has given us in his kingdom, then Jesus uses very strong language here. He says you're good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot by men. From a kingdom standpoint, if you're not going to be who God intended you to be in Christ, then you're of no value to the kingdom. The kingdom flounders when you're not being who you're supposed to be. But then he switches and goes to a second metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. If the salt metaphor tells us what we are to be, then the light metaphor tells us what we are to do. We are called to Christ in order to do something. Here we're clearly pointed to the purpose of light. We are to live purposefully. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not unlike the words that he declared over in John 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. Now he says, if you're part of my kingdom, you are the light of the world. Note that he does not say, try to be light. He says, you are the light. Why should we try to be what we already are? It's as difficult to do that as trying to enter a room that you're already in. Now think about that. You can't enter a room you're already in. You can't become what you already are. And you are the light of the world. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened by the transformational power of Jesus Christ when he comes to reign over our lives in this wonderful thing called the kingdom of God. When he reigns in our lives, he transforms us and gives us this new nature that is expressed as salt and light. That's what happens in what the Bible calls rebirth. But you see, the interesting part about that is that the purpose of light is always to reveal. It does that always. It always acts in a way that is consistent with its nature. You see, if you take a light and put it in a dark room, it reveals what's in that room. You walk into a dark room and there's no light there, you have no idea what's in that room. It may be good or bad. But as soon as you introduce light into that situation, it begins to reveal what you're surrounded by. And Jesus says, I want you to live your life in the kingdom in such a way that you're revealing 
to the world around them a very specific thing. Not just things in general, but a very specific thing. I want you to reveal to the world around you the glory of God. Notice again what Jesus said back in that, or what Peter wrote back in that first Peter passage. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you may proclaim his excellencies. In other words, everywhere you go and everything you do, you ought to just be talking about how great God is, how good God is. That ought to be what your life is all about. That's your job description. That's your purpose for being here on this earth, to just everywhere you go in and everything you do, to just keep showing how good and great God is, to be able to, as it were, sell the kingdom, to let people know what a good thing it is to be part of the kingdom, to come under the lordship and mastery of our king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus. You see, he's speaking here as the king. If you go over to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were amazed because he spoke to them with authority. Yes, authority. The authority of a king. He's saying, now let me tell you what life is like in this kingdom that I'm establishing and the way I want you to live within my kingdom. And he says, you are to be light. He says, now you, because I've made you to be light to reveal you don't deliberately try and hide that away, but you want to make sure that it's seen. You make it conspicuous. He says, a city on a hill is very conspicuous. He said, you don't take a lamp and light it and then put a basket over top of it. That thwarts the very purpose for lighting the lamp in the first place. I remember the first church I pastored. I can't ever think of this passage, but what I, I don't remember the first church I pastored. There was a, a woman who was teaching a, a senior adult Sunday school class dealing with this passage, and she thought it would be good to use a little object lesson. So she came in, and she had a candle, and she had a basket, and she lit the candle, and she put the basket over top of it. Only one problem. It caught the basket on fire, and it went up in flames. Now, that misses the point that Jesus was trying to make, obviously. I suppose you could preach, the thought just, my mind is going in the wrong place, I guess. I just got to think, you could make a pretty good message out of that. You know, I, I probably would have tried to redeem it by saying, you know, see, you can't even really extinguish, extinguish that light, can you? It's going to burn through whatever. It's going to shine. But the point is that that's the nature of light. It is to reveal. And he says, that's what I want you to be. That's what I want you to do. It's tied to our new nature in Christ. We've been given a new identity. It's this thought that Paul has captured over in 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verses 17 to 20. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be what you're intended to be and do what you're intended to do. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what are these good works that he's talking about? Were they the good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them? We learn that over in Ephesians, the second chapter, don't we? That God in creating you, you the individual, keep thinking, it's about you. He created you for good works good works that he wants you to do that's your assignment that's your job assignment in this world it's your heavenly father saying to you you know i've got a job for you to do and these are the works i want you to do and i've i've made ready for them and i've prepared them beforehand for you and all you've got to do is you've got to put them to use you've got to manifest them and the reason why it's important that you do that is because when you manifest those good works the people who know you and watch you are going to have to conclude you did not do that on your own. It's going to have about it a mysterious, supernatural quality that is attributable only to God. And therefore, he gets the glory. Let your light so shine before men, do the good works that God has assigned you to do and prepared for you to do. Let your light so shine through those that people see it and they go, I think God's at work here. And God is good. And God is great to be able to do that through that person. I often think, you know, if, if we're really living in Christ the way that we're supposed to and living such transformed life that he's made possible, there really ought not to be any explanation for our lives because pe people know us in the before story you know think back in your own life what it was like before you knew Christ your thinking was messed up your attitudes were not where they needed to be the things you said were not adjusted to what they needed to be and the things you were doing were not right and then you met Christ and he began that transforming work in your life and you began to think differently and feel differently and speak differently and act differently. And anyone who had known you in the before and then in the after would have to conclude, wow, you've changed. And I don't think you did it on your own. In fact, you changed because God did it. And then he gets the glory for it, doesn't he? It's interesting that Jesus uses this to make this sermon so intensely personal. He's casting the vision of what it's like to be part of his kingdom. And I want to ask you, are you a part of that kingdom? Has there ever come a time in your life when you realized, I've never bowed my knee to him as my Savior and Lord. I've never acknowledged that he is my king. 
I've never really said, okay, you can be in charge. You can reign over me. You can rule over my heart. If you've never done that, I've got another question I want to ask you, and it is this. How's that working for you? And a more problematical question, and you go, well, it's okay. Then let me ask you this adjacent question, and that is, can you do that for eternity? How's that going to work for you in eternity? And you go, well, I haven't gotten that one worked out yet. Because you can't work it out apart from Jesus. But when you turn to him and you say, I need you, Jesus, then you receive his life into you and it transforms you and you're made into a new person. And that could happen for you today. The Bible calls it being born again, becoming a new creation, taking on a new nature. And if you've never done that, whether you're listening online or whether you're here in this room today, isn't it time? Don't you need that? You're not big enough and you're not good enough to rule your own world, let alone the universe. Why don't you just abdicate, step off the throne, and let Jesus become king of your life? He wants to, and he can do that today. You just call out to him and say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I want you to be in control. I want you to be Lord of my life. And in that surrender, he'll come and he'll take over and he'll guide you and help you. But you go, okay, that's a settled issue for me though. I did bow my knee to Jesus. He is my king. Then the intensely personal question is this. Are you fulfilling your God-ordained purpose are you being what he called you to be and doing what he called you to do to the degree that you're not let me just say this you're robbing the world of what this world desperately needs you look around and you see a world and you go, oh man, it's a mess out there. And it needs your saltiness. And it needs your light. I don't think that anyone looking at our society and culture could conclude anything other than it's getting exceedingly dark. But oh, what an opportunity to be light in that darkness. I can't think of a higher privilege or calling than to be able to go into that mess out there and be salt and light. That's the high calling of God in Christ to you and me. Are you fulfilling it? Let's pray together. Father, this would have been a whole lot more comfortable passage if it hadn't been so intensely personal. 
I think all of us would have been a little happier if it would have been a plural you and not a singular you. If we didn't feel quite so much that you were having a real face-to-face with us, a one-on-one, and searching our own hearts. But you were doing so with such desire in your heart, Lord, because you see these things as good and necessary. And you're just saying to us, I want this for you. I want this for you. Father, I pray that in these closing moments that our hearts would be very open to you and if there are those here who need to come and bow their knee and surrender to Jesus Christ, that today would be that day in their lives. Draw them by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said no one can come to you unless the Father draws them. So, Father, we're asking that you would draw people to Jesus in this place today. And, Father, if there are those here who perhaps are not part of this fellowship, but have been trying to decide, is this where I want to plant my life? Help them to see that by bringing their saltiness and their light into this place, that the light of this place could be even brighter and the impact of this people could be even greater in this community. Father, it is our heart's desire that you would be glorified in all things. And you're showing us how to do that. And we thank you for that. Now use this time in a way that will glorify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.